Scripture reading today is Psalm 122. There are six exclamation points in this psalm. Are you ready? <laughs> I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace, be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord I, our God, I will seek for your good. Word. Amen. That was perfect. Uh, thank you. So, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Drew Bennett, uh, one of the pastors here. If we've not had a chance to meet, it's good to see you. Um, we continue this morning in a series through uh, what we call the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and Darian's right. You see, this is, a, this is an exuberant psalm. And so I want to ask a question of you this morning, of you and me. How would you finish the sentence? How would you fill in the blank? Okay? I was blank when they said, let's go to church today. How would you fill in the blank? That's the question that I want to be playing in the background as we talk this morning. Psalm 120 through 134 are collectively called the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, three times a year, the Israelites would travel from all over the country to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. God had commanded this in his law. And so in the Bible, consistently, uh, when you read someone, go of someone going to Jerusalem, they are, they're said to be going up to Jerusalem. When they're coming from Jerusalem, they're going down from Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. Uh, that is the way that's expressed in the scriptures, and it's even the way that, that the Jewish people talk about it today. If you go to Israel, they'll talk in the same language. Uh, and it's both a topological and a theological thing. Jerusalem is on a ridge of mountains that runs north to south, right in the middle of the country, with the Mediterranean falling off into the Mediterranean to the west and the Jordan River Valley to the east. And so uh, it really is the highest point in the nation. So no matter where you're going, you would be literally traveling up to it. But it also was God's city with God's house. It was a place of worship, heaven on earth, or at least the closest thing. And so when you were going up to Jerusalem, you're going up to, you're ascending the hill of the Lord. You're going up into the presence of God. And so these are the songs that the people would sing on the road as they went up. And thus we call them the Psalms of Ascent. Now, Psalm 122 begins, as, as we just read, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, exclamation point. Okay? Three times a year, God commanded the people to make this pilgrimage, to leave their homes, to hit the road, take a journey that would bring them to their true home, because that is a picture, that, that, that is the life of faith. God's people have always been a people who are on the way. And so you see, we've made that the title of this sermon series. The Bible describes people of faith as sojourners, making our way through this world, on our way, where? Home. We're just visitors here. 
Now, that doesn't mean we're tourists. Christian, uh, you know, church isn't a tourist attraction. It's much more like a refugee camp. That's the, that's the metaphor we really should be working with. And so you see the progression that I'm talking about. Even in the first three Psalms of Ascent, if you have a Bible, or if you were here last week, you might remember that in Psalm 120, he begins by describing his, le- his life in Meshech and Kedar, Kedar, Uh, in verse 5 there, and those are the outer fringes, the outer edges, the places that are far away, a long way off from where he's ultimately trying to get to God's house in Jerusalem. Uh, In Psalm 121, the very next psalm, he looks up to the Lord, he lifts his eyes up, he begins the journey as he says, my help comes from the mountains, and so he begins to look to the mountain range and to make his way there, and so as you come to Psalm 122 here, he's made his way now into Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord, to be with God's people and to be with God himself in worship. And so this is the journey he's been on throughout these first three psalms. And it's, it's, it's a parable of what life is like for us too. A disciple finds herself between, writes Jamie Smith. We're all on the way, which means, of course, that we've departed. Every one of us in the room, this is true to some sense, we've departed in some sense. We've had to leave and we're headed somewhere, we're headed toward, you know, we're headed toward a destination, we're headed, we're headed home, but the reality of our lives is we're not there yet, we're kind of there in the between, between where we've come from and where we're going as we travel along the road. Now, what I want to do this morning using this psalm is I want to give a name to this experience and kind of look at the broader story of the Bible, uh, and then I want to show you how this psalm helps you know what to do with that, with that experience, with all the disorientation and, and, and frustration and confusion, longing that comes with what life just feels like for us as people of faith. And then third, just look at the Hebrews 12 passage and say, what really makes it possible for us to live faithfully in the midst of, of this uh, transition time? Okay, so let's do those three things looking at this text together. First, uh, let's give a name to what to what all of the Psalms of Ascent, but particularly Psalm 122 is trying to give here. Uh, they, it's a big word. I like to use word, big words every now and again. I told the first service in seminary, they taught us that every now and then you need to use words that people don't know or haven't heard of just to remind them that you're smart and that they should listen to what you have to say. And so that's what I'm going after this morning. Uh, but there's a word that missiologists and sociologists use uh, to describe a lot of the events that happen in our lives, and it's the word liminality or liminal. A liminal experience is what we're talking about. And that word describes the ambiguity and the disorientation that occurs between, between leaving and not yet arriving, that we go through these periods all throughout our lives. I'll give you a couple of examples. A friend not long ago uh, decided to build a home, but of course they couldn't do it until they sold the house they were living in, and so they had to sell their house and move out, but then, you know, there was a period of months before the new house would be built, so what do you do? Well, they rented a home for six months, but again, what do you do when you're only going to be someplace for six months? You, you don't want to unpack all the boxes for just six months and then have to repack everything again, and so it was hard for these friends. They they never really settled in because, of course, you pile all the boxes up in the corner and you put the bare necessities out and then you have to rummage around and all the things that are packed for the stuff that you need. And it's just a really disorienting experience. But that is what, what we mean by that word liminal. It's the between. Another example, many of you know the Ellswick family. Well, years ago, when they first moved to Nicaragua, 
uh, from here to be missionaries, those first few months were extremely hard for them. I think Tony and Amber would probably use the word traumatic. Uh, they left everything familiar to start over in a new place, and it takes time. It takes years sometimes to get acclimated when you do that, even when you move your, your family from, uh, you know, across the country here in the States. But imagine going to a different country where they don't speak the same language. And so all missionaries do for the first two or three years is just learn to live life in the new place. So literally their job description is go to the grocery store and buy groceries. Because that might take me 30 minutes this afternoon to do that. But, but when you're in a brand new place and you don't speak the language, it's a, it's a really harrowing experience. Uh, because, you know, when, you, when, when a missionary does that, they're no longer in the country they're used to. They've left that place, but they're not yet acclimated to the climate and the language and the customs of the new place they're living. They're in the between. They're in this liminal experience. Now, the Psalms of Ascent were sung on the road between home and Jerusalem because that is where all of life is lived. Whether we realize it or not, in the between now, remember Israel's story. They left Egypt for the promised land, but first there were all of those years of wandering in the wilderness that they had to go through. And it was there, actually, that God met them and he saw them miraculously provide for them. It was when they got settled down, when they finally arrived, when they got into the land, when they got into their homes, that was when they started getting into trouble because they mistakenly thought, you know, we've made it. We've arrived. They didn't know that even once they were in the land, they were still in the between. So three times a year, God commanded them to leave again, to pack up, head towards Jerusalem, hit the road, to remind them that they were still on the way, that this is the way of faith, that this is what the life of faith looks like, and that they were people who were still on the way, and so are we. Now the truth is, that can be kind of a hard reality to, to sink into. And so the first mistake that we might make in trying to make sense of these things is to be, is there's, there's a number of things that we can do wrongly in this, okay? And the first is that we can begin to think that there's no home, that there's, that there's in fact no destination. We have very keen sense of that we have left, but where are we trying to get? Well, maybe there is no place. Maybe, maybe this is all there is. Maybe there is only the road. And this is what the postmodern philosophers like Albert Camus claim, and I really... Uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, their intellectual honesty. Now, most of them are atheistic and secular, and they don't, they don't, they don't believe, you know, in Christianity or in any truth claims. Uh, but there is something refresh, refreshingly honest and real about the way they try to make sense of the world. So these people, they readily admit that the world is exile, which is exactly what the Bible teaches too. But what they say. Uh, about it is because they don't, they, they're, they're materialists, right? They, they don't believe, and this is most of us in our, cult, our culture, this is the groundwater that's seeping up into our drinking water as a culture, right? This is what, this is, you may, it may not feel like it's right there, it may not be obvious for you, but this is, this is the water you're drinking in our culture. So these philosophers would say that because this life is exile, then the only way to really be happy is just to embrace it, to relinquish the nostalgia for home, to give up any hope, of anything other than what is right here that you can see and feel and taste and touch and to just know there's not going to be any future arrival of any kind. Now, Camus uh, championed this, and he, he wrote a little essay uh, called uh, The Myth of Sisyphus, 
And if you remember the character in Greek mythology, Sisyphus, it was this man who was assigned uh, in hell the task of rolling up a stone up a hill, uh, just spending all day pushing and straining and, 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 and getting the stone up the hill only at the end of the day to watch it roll back down to the bottom so that he had to start the same thing over again the next day. Day after day after day after day forever. Now, is that... Is, you looking forward to that in heaven? Doesn't that sound great? I mean, doesn't that sound like you want to do forever and ever, every day? And so, this, no, it, the lesson of Sisyphus's fate is that the futility and the frustration and the around and around again that we experience in life, the coming to the end of our work and realizing there's all it is, there's just more work to be done, all of that, that's hell, that's torment, that's, that's the thing we're trying to get away from. We were made for something else. We were made to arrive. We were made to enter into rest where we put all that stuff aside. Not so, though, for Camus. <clears throat> he reimagines Sisyphus and tries to remake despair's joy. So here's what he writes. And this, again, this may not seem obvious, but this is in the water we're drinking. He says, the struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. And so one must imagine Sisyphus happy. And so he says, this is not the between. This, this is all we've got. This, and this is what the postmodern thinkers say, that the only way to be happy then is to embrace it, to relinquish any nostalgia for any sense of home, any hope of arrival, to give up hope, to give in to cynicism, to let it, let it have its way with you, because the, 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 the quicker you do that, the better off you're going to be, the closer you'll be to happiness. The sooner you realize, in his words, that the hell of the present is the kingdom come, the better off you'll be. And it's a hopeless philosophy. But listen, here's, if this world is all there is, then that's all you've got. No wonder then that many of us try to, a different tactic, we we try to make ourselves at home in the world. We try to get off the road and settle down. And instead of thinking about the day of arrival being a day in the future, to find some place to build a life for ourselves here and now. But to do so is hard work because in order to do that, you have to maintain a certain emotional intellectual dishonesty. And that's, I appreciate Camus' honesty. But what I'm talking about now is what we, what we do if we maintain our materialistic worldview but we don't really go all the way into the emotional and intellectual honesty of it. What we do is we're forced to live with just, the only strategy is a strategy of distraction. So we learn to forget our alienation by letting ourselves be taken over by the distractions and the entertainments and the chatter of the world. Doesn't that sound familiar? And we do this so that we don't consciously feel so unsettled all the time to stuff it down, but the problem is it doesn't work. No matter what we do, we can't shake the feelings, the not-at-homeness that we feel. And we experience it as restlessness, as disappointment, or what C.S. Lewis called longing. That was his word, that life is full of longing, that, that, that no amount of family time is ever enough, that no Christmas morning ever lives up to the expectation of it on Christmas Eve. That all we're left with, even in the best things in life, is still the sense of not having what we think we need or want. This longing. And this is why people who have the most are often the most disillusioned. Because they've actually made it. And nothing changed. So the way of faith is something different. We have to find a different way. 
And the way of faith then is not to, to give up hope that there's a destination and it's not to try to make a home uh, in this world. It is to know that the road is not home, but the road is leading us home. And that's the key. Listen to Jamie Smith again. He says, there's a love, and I think I have this quote for you in your in your on in the insert there he says and i just i just think this is so helpful he says there's a love on the road when we stop loving the road there are myriad gifts along the way when we remember it is a way there is delight in the sojourn only when we know we're where home is and so what he means by that is that the key to enjoying the things of this world, which are good and God has given them to us for our enjoyment, the key to enjoying them is to know that they, as wonderful as they are, are not the thing itself. They're not the ultimate thing you're looking for. They are, as C.S. Lewis said, only the scent of a flower we've not yet found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, and the news from a country we've not yet visited. And so if you've already left... To walk by faith with God, you know, going back is not an option. There's only one way, and that's through. And to go through, to go through, you have to do what C.S. Lewis said. You have to rip open the inconsolable secret. I love that, that what, the way he puts it there. And to live and to embrace the longing, to live and embrace the not-at-homeness that you experience, even in the best things in life, and to become a sojourner, knowing that, yes, you're on the road, but the road is taking you home. And so Jamie Smith says this. He says, hope is found in a certain art of saying goodbye, but also in looking ahead to the day when someone will greet us with welcome home, and it's knowing how to navigate in the meantime. And that's very profound. So let me say it one more time. He says, hope is found in the certain art of saying goodbye, but also looking ahead to the day when someone will, welcome, will greet us with welcome home, but it's knowing ultimately how to navigate in the meantime, and that's exactly where Psalm 122, really all of the Psalms of Ascent, but particularly this Psalm, it's where, where it comes in. It meets us right at that place. It shows us how to navigate the between because it can be hard to manage. Faith it requires an enormous amount of patience and courage. And faith. Cynicism and despair are just too easy to succumb to. And here's what the psalm teaches. And really, I feel kind of that Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching, and I feel it this morning because this is just kind of the most duh sermon you've ever heard in your entire life. Because here's what Psalm 22 says You want to know the best strategy for living in the between faithfully, you need a worshiping people to belong to on the road. That's really all I got for you this morning. Aren't you glad you came to church? When I get done, you're going to think it took you 30 minutes to say that. Are you kidding me? We could have been out of here like 20 minutes ago. But look again. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, it begins. So David is being invited to join the caravan traveling to Jerusalem. Now, historians tell us that families would join with other families on the journey to Jerusalem together. There's even a hint of this in the Gospels, if you remember the story uh, where Jesus is lost on one of the trips to and from the Passover feast. And it was a, like two days before his mom even realized he was missing. Because there was such a large crowd and they just assumed that he was there among the relatives and acquaintances they were traveling with somewhere. And so Psalm 122 is an invitation first to join the people of God as they journey home. To enter into the life of the community of repentance and faith while you navigate the between. Friends, listen, Christianity isn't a solo gig. 
Uh, did you know almost all of the you are's or the you should statements in the Bible, they're almost all first person plural. Now, you don't get it in the translation because it's just translated you because, of course, uh, it would be better translated uh, something like my friend Trisha who says, use guys. Or, of course, in the South, we would say, y'all. Can you imagine reading a Bible where y'all was in there 5,000 times? I would want to throw it against the wall. There's no way I couldn't do that. And I'm from the South, but still, that would drive me insane. And so we translate it you, but 5,000 references in the Bible, God is saying you all, you together, you and me. And so um, we're meant to live in community. There's actually a, an opportunity in liminality, to come back to that word, when people go through liminal experiences, these experiences of leaving and then not yet arriving, uh, it brings them together in powerful ways. So think of David and his men out in the wilderness in Engedi, which we've been reading about recently, having left their families. Uh, and David being anointed king, but his kingdom not yet coming. So they're living in this in-between, right? They've left their families, they've gone and joined themselves with the king, but his kingdom isn't here yet. And so they're living in caves as exiles and everyone's trying to kill them. And so they're fighting for their lives. And, and what happens to them in the process of that? They become a band of brothers. They come together. Or, if you would prefer, and just to get back to my wheelhouse, think about the fellowship in the Lord of the Rings. If you've ever, there you go, I got a yes out of that one. That's how I feel too, man. And in that story, you remember, there's a, there's a, there's a leaving. The, the, this group gathers together to leave, to go on a journey, and to go on an adventure uh, to save uh, the world. And, and the experience transformed Legolas the elf and Gimli the, dwar Gimli the dwarf, who were, at the beginning, enemies into friends and brothers. Because this is what happens to people as they go through these experiences together. Two is better than one, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says. And the scholars agree that the image there in Ecclesiastes 4 is a journey through the wilderness. There are pits to fall in. There's dangerous weather patterns, uh, threatens, threat, threats from bandits, and so forth. I mean, you wouldn't want to face all that alone. We, we, we hiked the Appalachian Trail three or four months ago, and I tell you, the worst thing you could do is try to do that by yourself. There's just too many things that could go wrong. This life is a road through the wilderness, and you need to find a caravan of people to travel with. You need a fellowship because your calling is an adventure just as grand and dangerous and urgent as the one Frodo found himself in the middle of. But you see, belonging to the community of faith is more than just having the right beliefs. There are values, there are rhythms, there are habits that you have to adopt too. There's a way of life that is involved in this. And the most fundamental habit, the thing that we do more than anything else, more fundamentally than anything else, the fundamental habit of the people of faith is they gather together for worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So Eugene Peterson in his book about this, he says, Psalm, 20, Psalm 122 is the song of a person who decides to go to church and worship God. Doesn't that just seem so, okay, wow, profound. And yet it is in the simplicity of it. And so back to my original question, how would you fill in the blank? How would you fill, finish the sentence? I was blank when they said to me, let's go to church today. Because the way you answer that question 
reveals what you really believe about everything else that I've said this morning. We just sent our, we sent our first son off to college uh, this year. And, oh, that's just so full of worry for parents, isn't it? But he gets up and he goes to church on Sundays. And he seems to be pretty excited about it. And that is just a work of God's grace that I'm overwhelmed by. You with me? Because there's something significant in that. The way you answer that question reveals what you really believe about everything else that I've said. And I'm going to ask you to pray for me. My son's doing better than I am. I remember an Easter Sunday uh, a number of years ago now when my honest answer to that question would have been, would have been I'm, I'm full of dread when they said to me, let's go to church today. Easter Sunday and your pastor was wanting to stay home. That's a problem, okay? So you need to pray. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that. A seminary professor of mine used to say that the problem with making your living from your faith is that you're bound to lose one or the other. And, uh, and you know, so I have to be here on Sundays. It's my job to be here. But more than I have to be here, more profoundly, I need to be here on Sundays. And I often cannot say with the psalmist, I was glad when Sunday came around because Sunday is the, the busiest and hardest work day of the week. I mean, pastors only work one day a week, right? So, I mean, it's Sunday. I mean, it's my thing. So, it's all the other days that are good days. Sunday's a work day. It's the, I got to finally work one day a week. But it's easy for Sundays to become work and not worship. So, I'm just asking you to pray for me. Pray that I will feel more profoundly than, I, than that I should be here, that I have to be here. Pray that I would feel more, more profoundly my need to be here. But what about you? How would you fill in the blank? Do you feel annoyed when Sunday comes around? Do you feel tired? Guilty? Do you feel nothing? Because coming here on Sundays should feel like going home. Uh, we talk about this. Uh, we always go to my, my wife's family's house uh, on holidays, and she loves to go home. We, she, we sleep in the bed she slept in as a kid in the same room. And she said it just, it just feels different going home, doesn't it? So the hour or so we spend together in this room every week is the closest that we get in this life to heaven, to home. And you need to be here. Now I know, there he goes, the preacher telling me to come to church. Well, isn't that the most original thing ever? I know how self-serving it sounds, but I'm going to say it anyway. We need to be here. I need to be here. You need to be here. But even more than that, like David, we need God to so work in us that we're glad to be here. So glad that we would move heaven and earth to be here. But why? Why is it so important? And we're turning the corner toward home now, okay? Why is it so important? And there are two reasons, I think. Uh, There are obviously dozens more, but there are two reasons that this text brings out of why this is such a significant, important thing. And, And we need to be here for these two reasons. Because one, it is a weekly dose of reality. And because number two, it's a weekly practice of forced, a forced practice of gratitude. And those are verses 3 and 4 in the description of the city of Jerusalem. So look there. First, Jerusalem is is described there as a city bound firmly together. In other words, it's an architectural metaphor. Everything fit together. Nothing's out of place. It's put together would be a better, a good way of saying this. And that's exactly what worship does to us. It puts everything together. So Eugene Peterson writes this in his book on this psalm. He says, "When when you went to Jerusalem, you encountered the great foundational realities. God created you. God redeemed you, God provided for you in Jerusalem. You saw in ritual and heard proclaimed in preaching 
the powerful history-shaping truth that God forgives our sins and makes it possible to live without guilt or and with purpose. Now listen to this. He says, in Jerusalem, all the scattered fragments of experience, all the bits and pieces of truth and feeling and perception were put together in a single whole. And that is a perfect description of what happens when people of faith gather together for worship. All the bits and pieces of truth and feeling and perception get brought together in a single whole as a dose of reality. It helps us get it together when we feel like things are falling apart and it helps us keep it together, which is why we gotta come week after week. But secondly, Jerusalem is described here as the place of giving thanks to God. Verse four, as was decreed, for Israel by God himself, that God, God made Jerusalem as the center of the act of thanksgiving that he commanded of his people. And he commands it of us, not because he's an egomaniac. He does not command us to give thanks because he needs it. He commands us to give thanks because we need it. If you're out of sorts, I've learned this in my life. If you're out of sorts, the very first thing, the surest way back is gratitude. Augustine said a Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. And we are never more put together. We are never more whole. We are never more integrated as people than when we are living from places of thanksgiving. When we are giving thanks. Worship is a weekly forced practice of gratitude, which we need because when we are giving thanks, we are functioning at the center in touch with the basic core reality of our being. But I know what you're thinking. You would say, well, what if I don't feel grateful? And here's my answer to that. All the more reason to be here on Sundays because what you get to do here is you get to act yourself into the right way of feeling. Worship is an act that develops the feelings of gratitude. You come to worship not not necessarily sometimes because you have joy, but sometimes you come to worship to find your joy. Now, one thing about this text, for the people of God in the Old Testament, their worship revolved around a particular place, Jerusalem. Now, it's mentioned three times. And notice, I had in my notes there, notice all the exclamation points. Every time Jerusalem is mentioned, it comes with an exclamation. Jerusalem, the center of the world, God's city, where the temple, where God met with his people was located. And so, verse 2, he really becomes almost overwhelmed. He says, our feet have been standing within your gates Oh, Jerusalem, and you can just feel his excitement because to be within Jerusalem, he's been journeying, right? And he's finally there. And to be there was to be with God and with God's people. It was to be home. But here we have just a bit of biblical theology to do because Jerusalem does not mean the same thing for us that it would have for David. In the Bible, Jerusalem was not the thing itself, but it pointed to the real thing. And so the book of Hebrews has a lot to say about this. It was... Jerusalem was the model home of heaven on earth. And so the psalmist says, verses 6 and 7, Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem, peace within your walls and security within your borders, he says. And so Jerusalem there was the launching pad for God's purposes in the whole world. As Jerusalem went, so went the world. That's the point of verses 8 and 9. He says if things are well there with Jerusalem, it would mean good going out from that place into the whole world. It was the place that God blessed to make a blessing for all the nations of the earth. And that is still true today, of course. And we should pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is no longer the launching pad for God's salvation. 
the church is. And in Galatians 4, Paul uses a, a rather obscure metaphor contrasting the physical Jerusalem in Israel with the Jerusalem above, which is an image for the church. And in Hebrews 12, which we read just a few minutes ago, the writer says this, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So the church gathered for worship is the heavenly Jerusalem. So when we read pray for Jerusalem, we should read pray for the shalom of the heavenly Jerusalem and be a peacemaker and not a troublemaker within her walls because as the church in worship goes, so goes the world. Think about that. As the church in worship goes, so goes the whole world because this is now the place of blessing meant to be a blessing for, to, the whole na to all of the nations of the earth. The Sunday morning gathering of the saints is mission control for God's gospel advance throughout the whole world. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so you can see it makes sense why, why this psalm would be stirring us. That's what he's doing. He's stirring us and stirring our affections into gladness to be here and to be doing what we come to gather and do every, every week. So the only way to thrive in the in-between is to be on the way. Not all by yourself, but we're told here, get connected to a worshiping people and commit to the rhythm of gathering on the Lord's day, week after week, because as you do, it keeps you grounded in the truth and it forces your heart, which is so naturally curved in on itself to open up to God in gratitude and you do it again and again and again until it is so much a part of your life that it's painful when you have to miss. That's Psalm 122. It's not complicated. It's just hard. And so how does it happen? How, how, what, what really, how does all of this really happen in our lives? And that's our third point. And I just have a couple of things to say here before we're done. And I want you to see uh, in the Hebrews 12 passage, so draw your attention back to Hebrews 12. I think it's really important uh, to understanding what we as New Testament people of faith are to do with Psalm 122. And I think the Hebrews writer must have had it in mind as he wrote, because it goes on there to show us all how all of this is possible. So let's just read it again. He says, you have come, and that's language of worship. You've come, like, like they're coming to Jerusalem. We have come here, come towards the Lord. We're gathering in God's presence. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, <laughs> the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, what, what the writer's saying there is that God himself is our home, and we can come right in. The door's unlocked. You don't even have to knock. Just come in. He's a welcoming father. He's waiting for you like your mom was when you came home from college. He's not an angry judge. He's a welcoming father, and we can come to him, and we can know him, and we can make our home in his love, even as we continue our journey through the valley of the shadow of death, because at the center of all of this, at the center of Psalm 122, at the center of all reality is Jesus Christ himself, the mediator. You see that word there? It refers to the go-between, to a person who brings two sides together. So Jesus, according to the New Testament, is now the meeting place between God and man. His body is the temple. We no longer go up to Jerusalem to the house of the Lord and, and worship. We go to Jesus. 
And it says there that his blood is speaking a better word for us than the blood of Abel. And so that Old Testament story, Abel's blood cried out from the ground. It came up to God demanding justice because he was slain by his brother. But Jesus' blood is speaking a better word. Jesus' blood cries out like that too. Jesus' blood has a voice that comes up before God, but it is not there in the presence of God demanding justice. Instead, it's demanding mercy. His death upon the cross was the blow of justice for our sins. This is what our gospel teaches us. And so justice for him, but mercy for us. Isn't that great news? Hello, you with me? Isn't that great news? Well, in Acts, it says that the early Christians, as they gathered together for worship, we read this this last week. It says they were filled with wonder. And I was reading this week, and I just read verse 43 of chapter 2. This is how it, there's just these beautiful descriptions of all the things the early church did there in the beginning chapters of Acts. And in Acts 2, it says, and awe came upon every soul. And I read it, and, I, and I'm, I'm not overstating it. I read it. I was in a hotel room in, in St. Louis, Missouri. I read it, and I just fell to my knees, and I said, Oh, God, please do that in me and in the people that I pastor. Because it was the awe. See, that was the miracle. The miracle wasn't that they sold their possessions and gave to people. The miracle was that that awe came upon every soul, and that awe is what fueled everything else. It fueled the way they lived in community with one another, how they radically shared their possessions. It, it fueled the intensity of their worship, gathering day after day as if their life depended upon it. Awe came upon them all. There's another phrase later in chapter 4 where it says, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. In other words, their sinfulness, the, 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 just the reality of their unworthiness and at the same time of God's faithfulness and love to them in Jesus Christ, that reality sat like a 50-pound weight on their soul. And it's where their joy came from. It's where the rejoicing that we're called to here in Psalm 122 comes from. So let me ask you, does the truth of the gospel sit on your soul like that? Is grace, is great, is grace great? Is grace amazing? Is there great grace upon you? If so, it's a miracle celebrated. It's revival. You can't manufacture that. God has to do it. But if not, please don't despair. Ask God to work. He's got to work. And so let's ask him to. In fact, that's what I'd like to do as we close today. How about we just ask him right now to do that very thing in us? Would you pray with me? And so, Father, we do. We would say to you that we know our, the beginning place for us this morning is repentance. Uh, to readily admit to you that there are lots of reasons uh, why we came this morning. Uh, but too often, void there's a void in our life of the kind of gladness and rejoicing that is meant to fuel our worship. And I just confess that for myself. I confess that for for us as a people. And we would say we know how dysfunctional that is. We know that, that means that our lives, our hearts are not working the way they should. Uh, that the very thought of coming here, coming here to meet with you, coming here where you promised to be with your people, coming here to, to abide and, and, and intimately come to know you. What, what better thing in life is there and yet? And yet we give it our leftovers too often. And we just pray you would forgive us. And give us this morning a dose of reality and give us hearts, like override our hearts with your spirit 
and create in us gratitude and joy and hope that would sustain us as we travel this long road we must journey down. Uh, but we give you thanks that you're a constant source of encouragement, a, a faithful, comforting presence to us. And so we ask that you would continue to give us feet to walk in obedience to you, to live with the disappointment and loss and pain of the longing that we feel, but yet knowing that there is a day very soon where we will come and see you face to face and you will welcome us home and your glory will be like the sun that we live by and it will be everything that we've ever wanted and more. Uh, but until that day, help us fill our lives with the kinds of things that we need, work in us to create the kind of joy and radical dependence upon you that would make us live lives that would be uh, to your glory, because that is what we desire. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just be reminded that your singing is not just an expression of your love and adoration to the Lord. It's a, it's a, it's a ministry to the people uh, that you sing with. And so that, that was great. You did a great job. But sing the way you sang that the second time, the first time next time, okay? You with me? And receive the promise of this benediction that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, then he has made the way for you to come to the Father, and he has made it possible for the Father's face to now be turned towards you to bless and make you a blessing. So receive these words, and as he sends us now to go uh, in the overflow of all that he's done in us to, to do good in the places that he sends us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless you.